It is well established that Hillary Clinton is a master manipulator, a skilled schemer, and an inveterate liar. This has led to a list of scandals, of course, that would make Richard Nixon blush. But unlike the disgraced president who was forced to resign from office, Hillary has always managed to escape without any real accountability. She's the Harry Houdini of scandals, miraculously wiggling out of the kind of serious legal peril that would imprison a mere mortal. The latest indictments by special counsel John Durham read like a who's who of Hillary's Rolodex. Just about everyone closely associated with her was in on the big con that Donald Trump was a Kremlin asset who conspired with Russians to steal the 2016 presidential election. It was July 28, 2016. On that date, Hillary personally approved the plot to smear Trump, according to CIA documents. Her false claims were then secretly disseminated by Hillary's cadre of cronies and dirty tricksters. Was there anybody in her orbit that didn't actively participate? Well, maybe Bill, but they've been conspicuously estranged ever since he was caught messing around with a young White House intern back in the 1990s. I managed to identify most of Hillary's co-conspirators in my two books about the collusion fraud, the Russia hoax, and witch hunt. But a few of them managed to escape my detection. Thanks to Durham's dogged determination, their names are now coming to light. Many of those who carried out her illicit scheme had a nexus with the liberal think tank the Brookings Institution that pledged strict allegiance to Hillary Clinton. Law professor Jonathan Turley quipped that it's like the Kevin Bacon parlor game, six degrees of Brookings. But other nefarious figures either worked directly for Hillary or established themselves as members of her close-knit circle of friends. Make no mistake about it, it was Hillary who invented the hoax, financed it, and directed the methods by which it was circulated to the media and the FBI. She was the architect and the master designer of the greatest mass delusion in American political history. Evidence of her pivotal role has slowly emerged from declassified documents. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. By now, you've all heard me talk about MyPillow, and now Mike has done it again by introducing his new My Slippers. Mike has taken over two years to develop. It's designed to wear indoors, outdoors, all day long, made with MyPillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue. Made with quality leather suede. For a limited time, Mike is offering 40% off his new My Slippers. The My Slippers are so comfortable, you'll want to get some for the whole family. I love mine. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Square and use promo code Greg, G-R-E-G-G. You will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including 
the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, and MyPillow Towel Sets, or just call 1-800-544-8939 and use promo code GREGG. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. How in the world did Hillary Clinton manage to get away with instigating the Russia hoax for so long? She was smart and she was clever. She had others do her dirty work for her and maintained a safe distance separated through an elaborate chain of people. It was akin to a money laundering scheme, except dirty information was being laundered. In essence, here is how it worked. Hillary fed money from her presidential campaign to the law firm of Perkins Coie, which hired the opposition research firm of Fusion GPS, which hired ex-British spy Christopher Steele, who hired former Brookings analyst Igor Danchenko, who came full circle back to Hillary ally Charles H. Dolan Jr., among others, who helped conjure up the false allegations against Trump. Additional Hillary Confederates also shared a few fables of their own. Their contributions to the infamous dossier fueled the collusion fiction, and the gullible Trump-hating media accepted it as scripture, without ever bothering to check its veracity or verify the outrageous accusations contained therein. James Comey's FBI knew that the dossier was a complete fabrication and that Steele was a con artist who had lied to them. But that didn't matter. The Bureau exploited the lies to seek four successive warrants from the FISA court to spy on a Trump campaign associate, deceiving the judges and defrauding the court. The FBI also used the phony document as a pretext to investigate Trump, concealing his innocence from Congress and the American people. When Comey was fired, he stole FBI documents and leaked them to the media to instigate the appointment of his friend Bob Mueller as special counsel. This breathed new life into the Russia hoax. Joining us now to talk about it is Scott Ullinger, who is a retired CIA operations officer and Russian intelligence operations expert who has written extensively on Russiagate and the Steele dossier, also happens to have been a naval officer and a merchant marine officer. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Let's let's begin with the dossier since you've written about it. You know, Christopher Steele is a consummate liar, and in fact, he was fired by the FBI as a confidential source for lying to the Bureau in the fall of 2016. At that point, Scott, shouldn't Comey have tossed the dossier in the trash can where it belonged and, and ended the investigation of Trump. I mean, that dossier was garbage. And Comey and Andrew McCabe and Peter Strzok and so many others at the FBI knew it. That's right. Uh, that's certainly true, Greg. Uh, and also, even before the news came out that Comey had been cashiered by the FBI, in fact, when the Steele dossier first came to light, as an intelligence officer, I looked at it and I looked at what briefly have been put out, as well as the background of the people and the allegations. And I realized just with my sixth sense that this was absolute trash. Um, it was trash because Steele 
uh, at the time, Danchenko was an unknown, but he was talking about his contacts in, like within Moscow. And he was basically overtly meeting Russian contacts, like flying there to talk to them about Trump or something. And as a, as a human intelligence officer, as a real, quote, spy, unquote, the guy who meets missile scientists at midnight, that's what I did for a living. Um, this immediately smelled wrong. Because if you're having an overt meeting with somebody and everyone knows you're walking into somebody's office, it's not clandestine at all. And whoever you're talking to is going to be giving you some kind of party line. And in a place like Putin's Russia, you know, they understand they're keeping an eye on their own officials. They're certainly going to keep an eye on a former MI6 officer. And so everything he was doing was being telegraphed. And so from that moment, it was like, okay, look, Putin is going to be pulling the strings here. He's going to be telling these people what to say. And so he's going to tell them, you know, imaginary, as the Russians would say, compromat, compromising information on Trump as a way of sowing chaos into the U.S. electoral system. So from the beginning, it smelled wrong. And then as we moved along, we found out more things. We realized and, and, and non-intel officers start to realize how bad this smells. but. It is discouraging that uh, there were very few people, former, quote, former intelligence officers, former FBI officers, who were talking about how the Steele dossier was garbage. Um, I and a few others were talking about it almost from the minute it came out, that it was absolute trash, understanding Russian operations, understanding how our intel service operates or should operate. So that that was my take on it and and that was your take on it greg right you wrote two books about it and so it's yeah. clear that we've finally been proven right unfortunately but how much damage has been done in the meantime yeah you, you know um i remember reading when buzzfeed first published it i sat down and read it and i laughed out loud and then i read it again and i laughed even harder i mean the thing was so poorly written, it was really like, you know, sort of a junior high school wannabe fiction writer who was a miserable writer. And what I also discovered in doing a lot of research for the two books is that the timing of it was impossible. There, there was a point where Christopher Steele was hired by Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS. And within two weeks, two weeks, Scott, he produced the first memo of the collection of memos that comprised the dossier. And that was the most damaging memo of all. And, and it would have been absolutely impossible for someone to have gathered that kind of detailed, incriminating information in the course of 10 days to 14 days I mean, it was just, and, and this is a guy, Steele, who hadn't even been to Russia in 10 years. He didn't speak Russian. Uh, he, and, and so it, th there was an impossibility factor of the whole thing. And and nobody seemed to pay attention to that. What do you think? Right. You're right. Um, I remember looking at uh, Steele's background, and I think he was assigned to Moscow. But as you pointed out, it was at least 10 years before. Um, right. But I want to put out, I want to put out something else so people understand is that um, being an operations officer such as myself, like human intelligence, people like me compromise maybe you know 6% of the whole CIA. Everybody else is some kind of analyst, some kind of person who's, who's dealing with process, the processing of intelligence. 
So when a lot of people uh, see Intel officer, you know, when they read about it online, these people are, in fact, merely bureaucrats. They're not running around in dangerous places, living overseas, speaking foreign languages as, as I have done in my career. And so, right, so uh, why am I not surprised that Steele doesn't even speak Russian, which is absolutely ridiculous if you're going into a place like Russia, because there are a lot of Russians and there are a lot of Russian officials who do not speak the language. So now what? Steele has to have a translator there? Okay, that's even more compromising because now you've got three people in on the secret. So again, anyone right. with an intel background, this thing smelled to high heaven from the beginning. But yet people like Comey slash McCabe and John Brennan, the illustrious director of the CIA, that reprobate, they actively put this information, they actively ignored that information when they went to the FISA court, that, that fact it was garbage. They pushed the FISA court to um, authorize the, um, the monitoring of the Trump campaign. And not only that, but in the case of Brennan, he actually worked with foreign intel services to try to generate similar intelligence, which would, quote, corroborate, unquote, the Steele dossier, which then could be used for political leverage against Trump. Right. I mean, you can't make this up. It is it is so outrageous. Let's because of your background in the CIA, let me uh, let me just talk to you a little bit more about John Brennan. Brennan played such a pivotal role um, in in my book. I identify him as the instigator of the hoax in many ways beyond Hillary, because he he really ran with it. Um, the, the first part of it is, according to declassified CIA documents, they intercepted intelligence uh, that Hillary Clinton had conjured up the whole thing out of thin air. And as I say, on a pivotal date, July 28, 2018, she approves the plan. And the handwritten notes show that Brennan rushes over to the White House to brief Obama on it. And it's concealed thereafter for the better part of three and a half, four years. And then, so, so I mean, it, at that point in time, <laughs> shouldn't action have been, have been taken here? The FBI notified, hey, the, this is all done by Hillary. She made it all up. She's having her people disseminate this information. It's a plot to distract from her own email scandal to smear Donald Trump with false accusations. I mean, it should have stopped right there. If the president and the CIA director, John Brennan, had done the right thing. Exactly. You know, Brennan has always been a creature of the Obama administration. And before that, you know, uh, this is a person who actually incredibly, you know, upon entering the agency in maybe the early 90s or, or actually 80s, uh, had voted for Gus Hall, the American communist. I mean, it's almost like he went into another organization from me because I had the highest security clearance available and they went through my, you know, basically perfect background. But yet this person was allowed in. You know, it'd be interesting to find out who he knew that like normal things that would stop someone cold in a CIA application somehow didn't make a difference with him. So he went in. And he was um, basically, he had attached himself to George Tennant, a former CIA director, because he, uh, because before Tennant worked as a CIA director, he was in Congress and Brennan had the, you know, fortunate job of being his briefer. So when Tennant was made the director, he just 
uh, he basically rode Tenet's coattails uh, up into the organization far higher than he would ever have gotten had he not met Tenet. So that was an accidental, you know, bad luck for the American people that this guy was elevated to the top. And then when he became director, he decides he's going to, as you said, carry the ball, keep it going. And as far even going so far as to engage with foreign uh, and friendly intelligence services like the Estonians and the British to try to to basically pressure them to turn up intelligence that right. corroborated that, uh, you know, to go to the uh, Estonians and say, oh, by the way, I know, you know, we give you about, you know, $10 million worth of equipment every year. Um, it would be really, really helpful to me if you were able to provide intelligence that uh, Donald Trump was cavorting with prostitutes in Moscow, stamp one's foot very loudly. And the Estonians who are saying, okay, I think he's telling. I think he's trying to send me a message here. I mean, uh, maybe my our aid, our foreign intelligence aid, will be cut off. So maybe we better find a source to corroborate this. So let's right. go to the nearest bar and find some drunk, and just <laughs> and we'll say that he said it. And then, by the way, so looking at the process of intelligence, once the Estonians, let's say, or or the Brits or whoever or Italians, once they provide information to the CIA, regardless of how how much how lousy the sourcing is it is if it officially becomes from an official government source in other words the estonian intelligence agency is telling us this and so it, right. it it thus has the stamp of approval or it looks a lot more legitimate than it is and this is the way he finagled and managed intelligence to go against trump yeah, and the other thing he did was in September he goes over to Capitol Hill and Harry Reid's the you know the leader of the Democratic Party over there in the Senate and you know he says look um, if you send a letter to Comey uh, saying I demand that you investigate Donald Trump for colluding with Russia we can leak that letter to the media and the media can start writing about how Trump is being investigated for being a Kremlin asset. And that's precisely what happened. Harry Reid wrote not one, but two letters. The first letter, some people wrote about it in the media. The second letter, uh, letter they really started writing about it. So, so here's Brennan really playing a, an important role in fueling the collusion fiction. But I, I want to ask you, given that background, how has the character of the CIA changed? And to some extent, the FBI. Yeah, I think that uh, what I'm about to say would apply equally to uh, both of uh, both organizations. And in fact, I would say actually, as bad as the state as the CIA is in, the FBI is in that much worse a condition. Um, you know, I had an entire career into this in the CIA. I, I entered the CIA in 1996 after the you know afterglow of we won the Cold War kind of thing, and I left in 2003. Uh, retired in 2013. And so I saw like a, a very slow transition. And what what we saw is something that's happening in across all government institutions is people are coming into these organizations and they are or they have gone through the American educational system. The American educational system, you know, for at least 25 years has been putting out a lot of uh leftist indoctrination, so to speak, and it has affected 
the worldview of people going into these agencies. You know, 98% of their professors are Democrats. And so they tend to have the same political affiliation when they go into these organizations. And then in the CIA in particular, it is a naturally, quote, liberal, unquote, institution. It always has been because previously they used to take almost all Ivy League in. Well, those days are over. There's, there's plenty of people from regular schools or federal academies such as myself. But the overall mentality is one of, of classic liberalism, which is fine. But what you saw happening over time was Obama. And then, by the way, this, the, these developments are also very present in the U.S. military as well. Having served 28 years in the Navy, I can, you know, I can speak uh, having experienced a lot of that myself there. So what's happened is these organizations and people like Obama actively promoted people who had a similar view because, you know, the political appointees in these organizations are appointed by, in the case of the Obama administration, of course, he's a Democrat and uh, the FBI and so on. And so they selectively uh, inflated or, you know, promoted people. And they promoted other ones as well who did not have the same political affiliation, but they tended to promote their own. You saw this also in the military. And so what's happened over time is that people, unfortunately, you know, people in Washington and, and most people who are employed by these organizations work in Washington, you know, they have mortgages to pay. And so they become, they're a, like I would call them a tyrannized majority, like American society, where maybe, you know, 10% or 15% is extremely liberal and they suck all the oxygen out of the room. They're constantly on the offensive and the other people are kind of along for the ride. That's kind of what's happened to the FBI and the CIA over time. And this is this is this poses a very serious challenge to our national security because I seriously question the CIA's ability uh, in the intelligence collection field at this time, certainly in human intelligence, um, where basically if if CIA uh, officers are becoming increasingly indoctrinated in one ideology, I mean, they sound like they're more like uh, North Koreans than, than Americans. They're not going to be able to engage and recruit foreign um, spies for the United States. They're not going to be in a position to do it. For one thing, if they're elevated based on their political loyalty and not their actual ability then they're not going to be able to do the job. Right. And uh, and I think you see that in the CIA. You don't hear so much about it because the CIA's, uh, its nature is very, uh, very secret. You see it more in the FBI, you know, for instance, with the, um, with the O'Keefe raids, with the James O'Keefe raids of the FBI. There's not one person saying, wait a minute, what are we doing here? This is illegal what we're doing. And, right. and I'm not going to stand for it. And so um, I know several people who've applied to the FBI in the past year or two, and uh, they're good people, and they have severe misgivings about entering into this organ these organizations, and they have very serious heart-to-heart -heart talks with me because they know my opinions, and they're really torn between a, a desire to serve their country and a fear that they're going to be turned into some sort of monster. And so, right. uh, and, and I know that FBI recruitment uh, numbers are way down. That was reported maybe a year ago. Um, I suspect that CIA recru uh, recruitment is way down simply because there are too many good people who no longer respect these organizations that are saying, you know what, I'm going private sector. I am not right. going to go into that madhouse. And so 
they're going to have to bring in candidates who are less qualified, people who have less language skills, people who have less ability to think on the fly and other things, uh, uh, people who have less experience overseas. And, and it's going to result in diminished effectiveness. We're already seeing it in the CIA and the FBI. We're seeing it even in the Navy, which just had, uh, you know, which it has been having increased collisions at sea because there are fewer naval officers. They're spending all their time giving lectures about transgenderism and not enough studying of navigation. They're making basic mistakes that were un, almost unheard of. 25 or 30 years ago when I first entered these institutions. You know, uh, what I find so amazing is that somebody like Andrew McCabe at the FBI gets fired for uh, lying to the FBI, not once, but four times, three times he lied under oath. Now, that's a firing offense and you lose your pension. But under the Biden administration, they reinstate it all uh, as if it, it never happens. I mean, that what kind of a message does that send? And all these guys, I mean, John Brennan, James Clapper, Anna McCabe, all uh, of these nefarious people within the government agencies that we were supposed to trust are now making money as TV analysts on CNN and MSNBC it, and, and just continuing to deny the reality of the documents and the indictments of John Durham and still cling to the notion that Trump you know, conspired with Putin in the bowels of the Kremlin. It's, it's unbelievable. But speaking of John Durham, we've got now an indictment and a guilty plea of an FBI lawyer who admitted he phonied up documents to gain the spy warrants on the Trump campaign. We've got a lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign, Michael Sussman, who's now been charged with lying to the FBI. He was part of the team of Hillary Clinton Confederates who were feeding the phony information uh, to the FBI. And now the most recent indictment is Igor Danchenko, five charges of lying to the FBI, and he's really the centerpiece of the Steele dossier, which frankly should be called the Clinton dossier, since she, you know, financed it and ordered it. Um, Are you hopeful that we're going to get the full story, and do you think there'll be more indictments? I mean, uh, certainly you're the lawyer, so you certainly have much greater legal knowledge than I do. But having having read some, um, I understand that despite uh, a layman such as myself thinking that uh, this Durham investigation is going on for an extremely long time, that in fact, this investigation has not been going on from a legal perspective for very long, that sometimes these investigations can last up to five years. And this is where maybe into the you know two and a half year point. So- um, I suppose that, and I believe that there will be further there will be further um, arrests. However, um, at what level will these arrests be at is, I think, the big question. Uh, unfortunately, the cynic in me thinks that people like John Brennan and uh, you know reprobates like Comey and McCabe are somehow going to skate out of this. To say nothing of someone like Hillary Clinton, and uh, and in fact, there will just be lower people who are who are arrested and all. And look at the human, I mean, you know, look at the human cost of this. Uh, the people, um, who's the, um, the primary, uh, basically the FBI almost ruined his life. He was working for the, uh, he went to Moscow. He was working for the, uh, Carter page. Uh, 
Carter Page. You know, he was working for the Trump campaign, Naval Academy graduate, uh, had even cooperated with the FBI in the sense that he had, uh, as a frequent traveler to Moscow, had occasionally given them intelligence of interest that he had acquired along the way. And his reward for serving his country is to have his life destroyed by these people. And, you know, that's a very sobering thing, because as they always used to say, you know, if they're willing to do things like this to Donald Trump, the president of the United States, then people like you and I, they'll just roll over us. And uh, like you're making jokes on your website about how, you know, every morning you're expecting a federal raid, you know, before before light, you know, what can we expect of this? Oh, by the way, uh, another thing I'll point out is uh, from the intelligence angle, again, what we're seeing here, all of this stuff. One thing Americans don't realize, and I speak as someone who lived like 15 years in the former Soviet Union, is how people still have this vision of America that's very, um, that's very inspiring. They really look at America as the last beacon of freedom. And I'll tell you what, if you're living in the diplomat, uh, D- Democratic Republic of the Congo, America's looking pretty good. If you're living in um, you know, Bulgaria, America's looking pretty good. So a lot of people come forward with very, very important information for the CIA or the FBI. And they do it because they say, you know what? My country is really screwed up and I've got to go somewhere else so my children can have a better life. And so, you know what? I work at the virology lab in Wuhan and I know some stuff that the CIA needs to know about the Wuhan virus and I'm going to come forward. But every but as 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 the foreigners read the newspapers and see the corruption within our own government, that's going to be fewer recruitments for the CIA because the virology guy in Wuhan is going to say, wait a minute, the CIA is willing to sweep all this under the carpet. So I'm going to risk my life for nothing. I'm going to be eliminated just because the CIA is corrupt and can't get its act together or the FBI. And so it makes people less respectful of the U.S. and less willing to cooperate with the U.S. or give us information which can help our national security. And this is one of those things that I hope although I doubt our CIA leadership is thinking about at night. I don't think they are thinking about this since they're all dyed in the wool Democrats and they think that everything that's being done is perfectly legitimate. And they'll simply scratch their head and wonder why we have our recruitments are down 80% of hum- for human intelligence collectors around the world. And they simply will not understand why they're no longer able to collect important, timely human intelligence. You know, uh, one of the things that I I think troubles so many Americans is that uh, government officials that we uh, trust to enforce the law instead abused the law, whether it be John Brennan or James Clapper or Comey, McCabe, Peter Strzok, and and so many others. Um, And I think your point about this really creates a disheartening disincentive for people to come forward and and tell the truth because, you know, they they just don't trust that our government will do the right thing. And it does not portend well for the future of the CIA and the FBI, nor, you know, our nature at large. And I have great faith in America. uh, But, you know, unless... These people are held accountable, and I'm talking about Comey and McCabe and Strzok and and others, uh, especially those who actively deceive the FISA court and lie to the judges. I mean, that's a crime. It's called defrauding. A the felony. Court. Yeah, it's a felony. 
And I and you know somebody said recently. So let me get this straight. You get prosecuted for lying to the FBI, which is the essence of the two most recent indictments of John Durham. But FBI agents can lie to federal judges and get away with it. It, it, it makes no sense. It's backwards. It absolutely is. Um, you know, someone like myself, you know, having lived under... Um, you know, a pretty strict regime because I had a high security clearance. Uh, my life was an open book. Every relationship I had had to be reported with a foreign national, everything. every If I got a gift of, you know, in excess of $50, if someone gave me a watch or a carpet or something, I had to report that lest I go to Leavenworth or something. So, you know, if you want proof of a double dual system of justice, you know, the things I had to do to comply with the law, but yet these people can commit felonious acts and get away with it. It's extremely discouraging. Oh, by the way, here's something I'll tell you that uh, I'm sure you don't know. There's an organization called the AFIO, and it means it stands for the Association, uh, the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. So it's a big, you know, club and I, that I belong to because I'm a former intelligence officer. But um, I, I, I'm practically ready to, quote, turn in my badge because last year, the AFIO, so this is an organization that has meetings that puts out um, a significant like publication every quarter on studies in different parts of intelligence and uh, reviews intelligence books. The AFIO awarded the Intelligence Biography of the Year to James Comey. <laughs> And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was like Brennan was a runner-up, or Brennan was in there somehow. And I read that, and I practically had to go and throw up in the bathroom to show you that. Now, these are intelligence officers who who go back to the 19. I mean, some of them were in World War II, for heaven's sake, almost. I mean, they're in the Korean War. There's some old guys in this organization because it's like you know from 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 the 46 on up. But what I'm saying is, the management. So the man. So. The management or leadership of the AFIO actually puts this out and expects intel officers to swallow it without any static. And, well, I guess that's exactly what happened. Because here's another dirty little secret, is that almost every intelligence officer, I am a notable exception, almost every intelligence officer who retires from the CIA or the FBI or other uh, or the NSA Almost always they have a follow-on gig as some kind of contractor, okay? And no one wants to pee in the punch bowl. Even if they know as much as you and I, they mm -hmm. will not say anything because they're afraid that, you know, their $200,000 a year contract in the D.C. area, they're going to say, don't come into work tomorrow because you're talking too much. Right, and so, that, right. again, everyone goes along to get along, and it is sickening to me. Um, I actually really need to go out of my way and go to a meeting of the AFIO down in Washington where I'd basically probably get myself forcibly ejected because I would look people in the eye and say, how can you tolerate this? And then, and then everyone scratches their head and wonders, you know, how did France destroy itself during the French Revolution? Or how did, you know, Nazi Germany or Mussolini's Italy arise? And it's like, well, you know, you're seeing signs all around you and you're doing nothing. You're just actively encouraging this kind of stuff. Yeah. Scott Ulinger, thank you so much for being with us. Interesting conversation. Appreciate it. Come back soon.
Thanks a lot now, Greg. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.